Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven. That was my wife, Liberty. This is a podcast where we discuss the biggest and greatest news in sports and books for this week. And we try to convert our significant other to actually like the things that we like. For this week's scores, we only have soccer because it's the only sport that's back. And I really wish that we uh, didn't need to talk about it. Yeah, it was a pretty rough week in the Bundesliga for some teams, one of which would be yours in Dortmund. Uh, I like how you say for some teams, like some teams, (laughs) but not my team. Well, we did win 4-0 and you lost 4-0. So, you know, it's a pretty apparent victory on my end. All I'm saying is you're rude. (laughs) You're rude. So to wrap up Bundesliga, obviously we'll go over it real quick. Uh, it's the last week of the season, past week, so uh, as quickly as we got the Bundesliga back, we're now without it. So Bayern Munich defeated Wolfsburg 4-0 to uh, with goals from Kingsley Coman in the fourth minute. Mikael Cousins, who is a newer player in our league, only 20 years old. I still um, want to say Croissant. Yeah, well, he's not a pastry, so, you know, <laughs> he's just a French soccer player. He scored in the 37th minute. Lewin Golski got on the board with a PK in the 72nd due to a secondary yellow card, which turned into a red for the opposing team. So, um, wait, at what minute did you have to play 10 to 11? Oh, it was the 72nd. Oh, okay. So, that's pretty, not... pretty much the end of the game. Yeah, at, that's at that not rate. that bad. Uh, Muller scored in the 79th uh, shortly thereafter. Wrapping up, honestly, what was a great season. Sadly, only one goal shy of the Bundesliga single-season goal record for a team across the year. Would it have made? Would it have made a difference if the season had just continued as normal, or would it not? I don't know. So Bayern Munich was on a pretty hot goal scoring spree going into the coronavirus pause of right. the season. So it, there's quite a chance that we probably would have broken that record just because we were in that perfect rhythm. I guess is the best way to say it that some teams get into, like when it comes time for the end of the season. But at the same time, having a break, then you're coming back and you're healthy and you're ready to go, and you don't don't have any burnout at the end of the season. Absolutely. So we were completely healthy when we came back, shy of, I think, like one player. So it it definitely helped us out in the long run, I think, to have that pause. Uh, And then in the other news, obviously, Dortmund lost 4-0 to to Hoffenheim. Um, We'll keep that short and sweet because I'm getting quite a look over there from the (laughs) other side of the room right now. I really didn't think we were going to lose to Hoffenheim, but at the same time, there's only two teams at the top of the table. Of course, you're going to lose to some other teams. You're not going to win every game except for the people who are above you on the table. Well, N2 Hoffenheim didn't have much to lose, but they had a lot to gain. So they moved up into a playoff spot for uh, Champions League. So that was kind of what they were fighting for to get that opportunity. And then other big news, I guess the real losers of the Bundesliga this year, the relegated teams, being Dusseldorf and Paderborn, who were both pretty inspirational teams over the last two years, coming up from Bundesliga 2 and playing pretty well regularly in the previous season. Uh, But this year was definitely not their year by any means. And then the biggest shocking news, honestly, when it comes to relegation is Werder Bremen slipping all the way down into a playoff to stay in the Bundesliga spot. Oh, okay. They are going to be either playing Heidenheim 
or Hamburg. And Hamburg has been a team that's been in the main Bundesliga line. Uh, Heidenheim, as far as I know on record, has never been in Bundesliga line. So I'm kind of hoping for them just because I always like to root for the underdog. But at the same time, I think Hamburg would have better opportunity of beating Werder Bremen to get into the Bundesliga than Heidenheim. Who's the mascot for Hamburg? I know you want to be the Hamburglar so bad, but (laughs) McDonald's is not the sponsor of Hamburg. Um, I don't know whether we'll end up pissing some people off in Hamburg for making that statement, but you know, that that's your opinion. On Every things. time I hear the team name, I just imagine the Hamburglar on the soccer field. So like, I, I that's on me, but whatever. The one I go to is uh, Pink Panther, you know, uh, where he's Hamburga. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, Hamburg. Great team. They just... Hopefully they make it in. They they deserve to be there, you know, based on the effort they put. So does Heidenheim, let's be honest. They both... It just depends on how it all shakes out. Yeah, how the Bundesliga 2 breaks down. Uh, staying on the topic of soccer, uh, English Premier League, exciting Manchester league. United. Yeah. They beat Sheffield United on Wednesday, 3-0 to zero at stoppage. Yeah, uh, that's the second straight loss for Sheffield United. They lost to Newcastle the previous week. So uh, just doling out those L's to Sheffield United between your team and my team. So That's the way we like it. Yeah. And then this week we have FA Cup. Uh, so kind of like DFB Pokal for the German soccer fans out there. It's the English Championship. Uh, Manchester United played yesterday, I believe. I don't know the outcome of that game. I feel bad that I didn't look that up. So it looks like Manchester United ended up beating Norwich City, I think is how you pronounce it. We won 2-1. to one. Yeah, and then Newcastle today scores off with the other side of Manchester, with City. City. Mm-hmm. And that game is about two hours away from when we're recording currently, so pretty excited about uh, getting to watch that game maybe a little bit after we're done recording for the day. But this week, Newcastle drew against Aston Villa 1-1 at full time. Which is pretty disappointing because Villa is sliding down into relegation as it sits right now. So we were kind of hoping for a victory. We needed a victory to move us closer to top 10. Um, We were sitting 13th coming into the week. So uh, realistically, Newcastle's never really a top flight team in recent years, at least as long as I've been a fan. However, they do like to creep into the top 10 every now and again. And as you know, in the Premier League, you get a little bit of a bigger payday if you slip into that top 10 slot. So it's just... But you're not in relegation, right? Like there's not a chance of you slipping and going into the second league. Realistically, the only way we would be relegated is if literally every team behind us won pretty much every game on the way out and we lost every single game, which the odds are very hard that that would never happen. So you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, I knew that was coming from you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess technically there is a chance, but it would have to be like every team hitting the lottery every single week behind us and us missing the lottery every single week, you know, so... Odds of it happening are pretty pretty slim. How many games are left in the Premier League season? Because we started after the Bundesliga came back, so I know that we're behind. And we'll take a pause. To look this up, research department. Boop, 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 boop. 92 games left split between all the teams. So to me, from what I'm researching, it looks like we'll be coming to a close on Sunday, the 26th of July for the regular season for the Premier League. Yeah, and it looks like there's about like seven to eight games for most teams still left for the remainder of the season. It's still a lot of games, a lot of points left. Yeah, they're cramming a a lot of games in a very relatively short period of time, so... A little under a month left. The NHL Hockey Hall of Fame ended up picking out 
players? Is that how that works? Yeah, so we had the inductions this week. Into was it the actual inductions happening or just? Yes, yeah, oh, okay. it was the actual inductions themselves. So two weeks ago they announced possible candidates, which I just absolutely hate. Just tell us who's getting in. Like, right, why, right. why waste our time with all this nonsense of, hey, this person could make it, but they are not going to because they didn't get voted in. Well, um, I saw this whole thing on the NHL website about possible inductees and who from each team could possibly get in and it's just like I feel like you're getting people's hopes up unnecessarily just tell us who got in so the big three in the more recent world of hockey at least current hockey would be Ken Holland who's the GM of the Edmonton Oilers currently he had a very long managerial career with the Detroit Red Wings Okay. And then made a whopping four appearances in his NHL career. So he was more or less as a goalie, not NHL quality per se. Right, right. But definitely built some great teams in the late 90s, early 2000s for Detroit. Everybody knows the historical run of Detroit. It was so many years, like just crazy number of years right, that they right. were in the playoffs without being ever eliminated. Uh, a lot of that had to do with Stevie Eiserman and then uh, Ken Holland working a lot of the back office stuff behind closed doors, building great rosters back and forth. Uh, the second one being Marion Hosa. Your uh, favorite player, from, I'm pretty from sure. my team. I'm very well connected with him. There's a backstory to it, but we won't get into all that because it's kind of long and a little bit depressing but he's a three-time Stanley Cup champion with Chicago Blackhawks uh, I also put in there the note the, the greatest team he played for um, uh, I, I felt like I needed to add that as at one point in time he did play for the Penguins for a year uh, um, rude yeah rude he, he also played for Detroit and for the infamous Atlanta Thrashers now Winnipeg Jets that's still so weird to me. Yeah, it's quite the the move. It wasn't like, uh, hey, we're just transferring in the same market. We're moving all the way across. And then he was drafted originally by the Ottawa Senators. That's where he played a majority of his career. Was and that's crazy, that, right? Though. He played for the Sens. But what was rough for Hosa through his career, and I don't know that I could have taken kind of the demoralization of it. He seemed to move on the year before any team ever won the Stanley <laughs> Cup. You know, he left the Penguins in 08. We won in 09. And you won in 09. And the year that he left Detroit, conveniently the year that Detroit wins the Stanley Cup. And luckily, you know, the Blackhawks were like, hey, listen, we know you've been on the struggle bus for most of your <laughs> career when it comes to Stanley Cups. How's three of them sound? You know, Marion Hosa, it's it's sad to see your career end the way it did with uh, skin condition, but at the same time, your health obviously comes before, you know, an extended career. Right. As a favorite player of mine and a, as a Blackhawks fan, it, it was an absolute honor to have you for the years that we did, and we're absolutely ecstatic that you're retiring as a member of the Blackhawks in the long term. We have to figure out, I'm sure, like a one-day contract or something like that as he's technically still under contract for the Coyotes this year. Yeah. But uh, I, w I honestly would believe that the Blackhawks organization would extend that, and if they don't, they're absolute monsters. Who else was it for the inductees? That's two, right? Yeah, and then the other big name, uh, Jerome McGinley. He, you know, like Hosa, has been a workhorse in the NHL for way too many years. I, I don't know how his body held up to the abuse that he's been put through but Calgary Flames was the biggest team and longest team that he was with uh, he had a short stint in Pittsburgh as well seems like everybody wants to make at least a stop in Pittsburgh if they're going to be a Hall of Fame inductee 
we build Hall of Fame inductees. In one year. Then he had a short stint with the Boston Bruins. Um, more Dude. recently, the longer period of his career outside of the Calgary Flames was with the Colorado Avalanche. And then finished off his career with the Los Angeles Kings, um, which, as you know, is not one of my favorite teams in the entire world. Growing up in San Diego, being a Blackhawks fan, L.A. is kind of just on my naughty list of sports teams. You know, usually speaking, I don't enjoy talking about them too much. Um, some notes to Jerome McGinley, uh, as he sadly was never a part of a Stanley Cup winning team. He was the winner of the Maurice Rocket Richard Trophy, uh, which is the most goals in the NHL, which is not quite the easiest uh, trophy to win. Is that over the course of your career? No, for a season. So he he won it in 2002 and 2004. Um, I was going to say, because scoring goals back in the day was really easy. That's why a lot of older time players got those trophies. Yeah, definitely. And that's an argument that I think a lot of hockey fans will make. The quality of players maybe wasn't as deep as it is now when it comes to like forwards and defensemen and things like that. However, uh, when it comes to goalies, the goalie quality has definitely gone up in about the last 20 years in the NHL. You could also argue about equipment and the nets changed, the goals changed, etc. Yeah. Uh, Also in 2002, he won the Art Ross Trophy, which means he also had the most points. So he was the highest point scorer and goal scorer in in the NHL, which sometimes comes hand in hand and other times does not. uh, Depends on how friendly you are with giving people an assist. Right. And then the biggest thing for him uh, in his history, he was a two-time Olympic gold medalist for Team Canada. He was also a gold medalist for their World Juniors team and then also a World Hockey Championship Canadian Hockey gold medalist. So he won a lot of things in the national team stuff comes to championships. Obviously he's had a lot of appearances in Stanley Cup playoffs and so on and so forth, but he just never quite got the got the final piece of hardware. Right. right. So That's rough. This week we also got the picks for the uh, lottery for the draft. Yeah, the draft lottery did take place this week. So you had, we'll start kind of from number eight and work our way down because I, I feel like that's the best way to handle it. You mean um, up. Yeah, work our way up, eight to one. Buffalo Sabres came in at number eight. They had a rough year. Uh, they are definitely getting close to finishing a building of their organization. I think they need maybe like two or three more key players and they'll be there. You can't be a good hockey team with one good player. That's all I'm going to say about Buffalo. Well, they made a lot of big moves this year for young talent. As well, they've made some big trades that allowed them to pick up a few more draft picks over the next couple drafts. So they should be there soon. They made a big trade with you with Shiri this year. There's a chance that within the next two years, you'll see maybe the Sabres not be one of these teams that just automatically is a top 10 pick in the draft. You know how I feel about prospects and draft picks. I don't feel like you should trade actual people for these things because you don't know how they're going to pan out. So like you're saying, well, they have so many picks and they could be better and bigger. Yeah, but they could also not. Yeah. And to kind of nullify that argument, there's a lot of people out there that are sports commentators right now that'll tell you that the qualities of players that are coming out of the draft now, especially with the salary cap, as we learned this week, is going to be staying the same for the next three years at $81.5 million. It gives you a lot of wiggle room with entry-level contracts because you're not spending nearly as much money and you're bringing a player that most of the time has either played in Europe or has played at the collegiate level or at the junior level in the Canadian leagues. I just... And they're ready most of the time to come into the NHL. Well, I disagree with that, but... 
I just think the prospect of a player who's never been tested isn't worth as much as a player who's been in this league and knows how to play and knows how to put in the work. Because, yeah, you're right, they might be good, ready to go, but they haven't been there, they haven't done it, they haven't had the experience. So for me, they're not worth as much as an actual player. And you have every right to your opinion on that. Obviously, we're not going to ever agree on this. Um, As we say in this household, you have the right to be wrong. Yeah. The number seven pick is going out to the New Jersey Devils, another team who people thought were going to be good this year at the beginning of the season and have pretty much flopped all year long. You know, the only one team really doing worse than them this year, and I believe that was Detroit. Number six was the Anaheim Ducks, another team who... As somebody who grew up in San Diego, I grew up watching a lot of. They were televised regularly in the San Diego market. So when it came to hockey, if I couldn't get the Blackhawks games, it's pretty much what I was watching. And, you know, at one point being owned by Disney and having their own movie series related to a bunch of kids who wore their uniforms, basically. Yeah. No, I have a problem with Anaheim, but I think that has more to do with the games that we went and saw when we were living in California because I hate their fans. Their fans are some of the worst NHL fans that I've ever come into contact with. Number five uh, being the Ottawa Senators. They are another team who has been on the struggle bus for a number of years. They had a couple good teams in the 2000s that made it decently far into the playoffs, but still another team that's kind of had some funk over the last few years. Yeah. Uh, number four, Red Wings. And I think this is the most controversial of them all. It, it seemed almost at the end of the year that the Red Wings were just tanking games on purpose because they, they were trying to get that high percentage for the first pick. I would never make that assumption about a team, but I've thought they've been tanking it all year. Yeah. Uh, another team who has a lot of really good young talent in, make the pun, in the wings, but they are... I'd say probably three or four years away, a lot of commentators in the world of sports and experts on subjects related to it will tell you less than that, but I think there's still a couple major pieces away from being real contenders again. They're in kind of a pickle because of that, so it's just really rough to see a team slide that far, being dead last, and being overtaken by a couple other team you know ahead in the draft when you struggle so hard and the one thing your fans look forward to is who's going to be the superstar we draft this year and then you slide all the way down to four I don't like that conversation because it's the possibility of drafting someone because we've seen years where you're wondering why someone got drafted in the second round whenever they should have been drafted in the first round like this was the superstar everyone was commenting about and thinking they were going to go like first or second they don't make it till the second round yeah the tough part is this year a lot of people including myself see it as a pretty stacked year for the draft so there's been comparisons of it being the same draft year as like a Crosby or Taves was where there's just so much quality out there so realistically at the fourth spot yeah you'll probably miss like the two big names or three big names but you're still going to get somebody of decent quality out of the draft the only thing that i could think would be maybe a bad thing for them being number four is that as we've seen people during the draft will trade picks for actual players and having a number four versus a three two or one means you sort of have a smaller bargaining chip there 
That's yeah. the only thing I can think of. You're kind of missing the window of opportunity for sure at that point. And then you have back in number three, the Ottawa Senators. Uh, that was given through a trade to the San Jose Sharks. So that goes sh- to my point. So the Sharks had basically made a trade with Ottawa Senators uh, it last year and given up their first round draft pick in the trade for this year. And in turn, Ottawa picks up a three and five pick. So they've got an opportunity at two really solid players probably in the draft. Right. And then number two, uh, the LA Kings. As I was saying earlier, I'm not too fond of the organization, not too fond of the team. But yeah, so the Kings are going to have a really quality pick, and they need it. They 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 struggled pretty hard this year as well in the West. And then to wrap it up, the fun part about the NHL draft lottery is uh, a placeholder team is going to be taking the number one pick. Basically, what that means, one of the eight teams eliminated in the playoff qualifying rounds, so like the first knockout type stages so basically one of those eight teams will be that are eliminated in the playoff qualifying round will get the first pick it's going to break down to about 12.5 percent per team uh possibility of getting that getting that first spot and then obviously the rest of the draft will break down accordingly based on performance from the previous season so it's kind of exciting to see that if you do luck out in the playoffs in the first elimination portion of the process that there's a chance you'll be rewarded you know so by luck out you mean drop out yeah if you if you if you lose out in the first rounds of the playoffs this year there's a one in eight chance that you're going to get the best player in the draft depending on your personal preferences you know what i would prefer Hmm. winning the stanley cup i i agree there's been a lot of talk uh, that the blackhawks you know if they get eliminated they they probably should in order to get a quality player and i'm like hey you know what also be a chip off the little block in that instance would be winning another stanley cup it would be four in more or less a decade because we won in 2009-2010 and now we'd be at you know 2019 and 2020 to wrap it all up so it'd be like four and what 11 years I guess technically at that point season wise. This week also the NHL narrowed down the cities that are options for the postseason. Yeah we're, we're uh, technically down to five right now but based on a lot of the talk and rumor mills that's going around the NHL right now we're probably going to lose Vegas very early on this week just due to COVID spikes that they're well especially further south in America yeah yeah but Chicago is still in it yeah so the the eliminated list currently sits at no longer in discussion Vancouver Columbus Dallas Pittsburgh Minneapolis St. Paul and the hub cities technically that are still left again are Vegas Chicago Los Angeles Toronto and Edmonton a lot of articles and things that I was reading about this week related to the hub cities seems like it's leaning more on Toronto and Edmonton just because of COVID spikes in LA and in Las Vegas. Um, they're more or less counting them out. Whereas Edmonton and Toronto have pretty strong facilities built up for hosting these types of events. Well, it also helps that Canada has basically said that a quarantine for everyone when they come into Canada isn't necessary. So I'm thinking it's going to be the best chance for them to actually play all the way through to the Stanley Cup is if they go to Canada and do it two cities there because you don't have to worry about the huge spikes like we're getting in America. And 
you also don't have to worry about a 14-day quarantine when you get there. Yeah, and and to speak on some of the stuff that at least Edmonton offers and Toronto's offering related to this, because it seems like they're the ones that are really being public about the packages they're offering and availability for, you know, moving players around and where players are going to stay and so on and so forth. They have more of a plan than other places? Well, they've been more public with their plans. I, okay. I'm sure the other cities have their own plans. They're just not showing their cards yet, I guess, is the best way to put it. Publicly, Edmonton probably has one of the better systems. Their main stadium for their games uh, is not only connected to a hotel, which the NHL has been offered to basically rent out from the hotel chain so the players can just stay there. Mm-hmm. So everything's a controlled environment. You that do ha- have to worry at that point, though, about the people who work at the hotel as well as the people who work at the stadium. Right, which is also a part of Edmonton's plan is to kind of just basically force the staff that are working there more or less to be more in a controlled environment as well. So the staff would have to be almost in the same environments as the players, which so, staying in the hotel, I guess, and eating that, there, I don't know. That's all I can think of, yeah. Uh, but Edmonton's hotel and stadium are attached to one another. As well, they have a practice facility within a block from the actual stadium itself. So players could literally just bust from the hotel one block over in a controlled environment to the practice facility and the practice facility, goalies could literally not even get out of their goalie gear, just hop on a golf cart and be driven <laughs> to the stadium. It, it's a pretty nice facility, at least when it comes to hosting everything. Having the hotel that would be capable of handling the capacity of players, referees, all the things that would be necessary to make this tournament go right. is, is kind of nice. It's a lot of players, and it's probably a lot of hotel staff to maintain the hotel and take care of all those players. So it's nice that they're connected and you don't have to worry about transferring over from one location to another. And then you said you had something for Toronto? Yeah, and Toronto is kind of promising the same thing. They have an area in the city that has multiple practice facilities where they host a lot of local high school and collegiate tournaments. As well, too, they obviously have a large amount of facilities to host these games because you have the Marlies also in the same place. So within a couple blocks of one another, you have the main stadium for the Maple Leafs and then also for the Marlies all in one area. But do they have a hotel attached to their stadium? They have hotels nearby. They haven't really promised dedicated like quite to the same level that Edmonton has. So Um, we're backing Edmonton at the very least. I would be most comfortable currently with that that plan, more so than Toronto. I feel like Toronto would require more transportation than Edmonton obviously would. Mm -hmm. Just due to proximity, it seems a lot better. Edmonton being a little bit smaller on the city side when it comes to Canadian major cities as well means there's less population to put these players at risk as well, which is nice. I'm just ready for some hockey, so I want them to pick. I will say I approve more of two Canadian cities than doing a Canadian and a U.S. or doing two U.S. because I think the U.S. just isn't taking this seriously enough. And no matter what sort of protocols are put in place, I think there's still a higher risk. Yeah. And then the last subject in the NHL this week, kind of like baseball, who's going to be having the collective bargaining agreement next year to deal with. And they already seem to be struggling with basic bargaining skills right now in the MLB. Um, But the NHL is currently working on their collective bargaining agreement for next season as well. The two hot topics really are more so over expanding the playoff picture to 24 teams. 
No, uh, hard pass. And then keeping the salary cap locked in at $81.5 million for the next three seasons. I don't know that that's going to be a problem unless you have people arguing that they want to do more. Yeah, the, the main concern is whether or not the hockey players are still the way hockey players have always been, which is it's great to get paid a lot of money, but at the same time, I'd rather be playing than not. Or is it going to be like the previous years, and I think it was 0405 where they had the NHL lockout over the CBA? I don't see the point in a lot of these negotiations, but I know that they're necessary to keep the whole thing going. I don't understand why there would be a problem with just doing the continuation of the cap. Yeah, and and the only argument to like cap increases is if you're a team that wins the Stanley Cup and you have some players you'd really like to sign back and you don't can't give them the money because you're already at salary cap prices. I would say that all you have to do is look at Pittsburgh's 2016 win, 2017 win, and ask what happened because we kept a majority of our players, and that's how we won it back-to-back. Well, a lot of that had to do with the fact that you had those guys already contractually obligated for another season. Well, I'm saying as a GM, you could look at the player and go, do you want to win a second Stanley Cup? Because if we can keep this team together, we can win two in a row and be like Pittsburgh. I'm just saying. Yeah, as somebody who grew up watching a lot of Chicago sports and in more recent years, my heart's been broken a couple times by agents who are like, we'll take pay cuts to stay on the team. Brandon Saad. <clears throat> I love you, Saad, but your agent was full of it and kind of the same stipulation with Panarin. Panarin at one point stated outright in public that he wanted to stay with the Blackhawks and stay on the Patrick Kane line because he wanted to be that superstar at that same level and then we brought Brandon Saad back and traded him to Columbus and Columbus had Panarin for what I think like two or three seasons and he's now in New York I think he's doing all right in New York. Oh, he's doing great in New York. He's he's doing phenomenal. They they haven't built the team around him, but they've definitely put some key players around him, and that's perpetuating I, his talent. I do agree with you that agents shouldn't say that they're willing to take a pay cut for their player, or their player's willing to take a pay cut, and then just go completely against that. That's yeah. some nonsense. It's, it's been heartbreaking over the years. But speaking of people who can and cannot agree to things... The MLB owners voted unanimously to proceed with the season under an agreement they apparently had at the end of March, which I don't know what this agreement is, but they agreed to it so again. It's it's more or less giving the commissioner a little bit more power to just basically force answers into some of the things, which is good-ish because it seemed like the Players Association and the owners were just bickering children going back and forth, and the commissioner was just sitting there in the middle like, Guys, you guys have come so close so many times, why don't we just agree on something? Right. But it's going to be 60 games starting around July 24th. It depends on health and safety protocols or something. That has just more or less has been the estimated date. Right now they announced that the opening day game, the first game, is going to be between the Yankees and the Nationals. So you're going to have Jarrett Cole more than likely as the starter for the Yankees because they just spent a chunk of money on him to get him from Houston. And we won't go into Houston's cheating spree, but Jarrett Cole, by far, very, very great pitcher. If that's the case, why would he need to cheat? I'm sorry, moving on. Well, it wasn't the pitchers that were cheating. It was more the batters that were cheating. You know, got that trash can noise that they were making and things like that and all sorts of, like, 
electric diodes and whatever else they've been accused of. I don't know what this is, but moving on. And then you have the Nationals starting pitcher. I believe it's going to be Scherzer, I think, is who should be facing him this year. So, Scherz, let's go with that. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be definitely two aces that have been like itching to get in and play a game. So it should be uh, probably a low-scoring game. Hopefully you see a good pitcher's duel to start it all off. I mean, if that's what you like watching, I guess, I mean... I'll see the game or highlights from the game, I'm sure. But I know that they're supposed to report for spring training by July 1st. They basically said you have a week to get to your respective city to report for training. Yeah, so it, it should be exciting to see the team starting to come together. The MLB has authorized them to play three exhibition games before the regular season starts. So, oh, I didn't see that, yeah. Um, we'll see who actually takes who up on that offer just because of traveling restrictions and things like that currently for a lot of those players but most of these guys travel on private jet it's not like they're flying in normal commuter style coach jets where they're sitting shoulder to shoulder with covid case number two million and some change you know whatever it might end up being you know again they're going to be in a pretty controlled environment i would imagine yeah it came out in an article that i was reading the percentage pay they're going to be getting based on normal seasons and how many games they're playing this season and it doesn't sound like enough to me. And maybe if you're one of these hotshots who makes a ton of money, you're fine. But it said in the article I read that they're earning 37% pay based on number of games played and all of that fun stuff. And I'm like, how would you like it if you're told you can only work this many hours and you're getting this much of your normal pay if you're a salary person? Yeah, so 37% of the pay um, is going to be for the teams that obviously don't qualify for the playoffs. They'll get paid their normal playoff-based income as they go along. But yeah, 37% of the pay... Roughly, that's because that's about how much of the season they're going to be playing. It's not like they're being shortchanged. I think it's just because they're more of a salary-type position rather than hourly. Hourly, I can understand because those are the types of jobs I've worked. But as far as salary, it sounds like not enough money for how much they've had to deal with since COVID started and all this nonsense with the back and forth and crap. At the same time, though, they're employed, whereas there are a lot of people that who aren't. Yeah, are no, not you're right. right now. So the way I always look at it, just because I was able to stay employed during all this disaster, was at least I'm working and I shouldn't be whining about it. No, you're right. You're completely right. I think it's more because of the position that they're in that it sounds weird, but It makes sense. It's how many games they're playing. So, of course, that's how much they should get paid. I think more of my problem is how long this went on. And they could have played more games. They could have gotten more of a chance to make more money. Definitely. If the bickering wouldn't happen, we could have seen an 80, 90 game season, which would would have paid them at least half of what they normally make. Right. So, it's like the kids getting in trouble, but their parents are the ones arguing. Yeah, obviously owners have been hurt too, but let's be honest, they have more money than players do, so they're not really in the same pickle. Yeah, it's good to see that the bickering is over and everything has been announced. Supposedly. But at the same time, with the way COVID is currently being handled in the States, there's always a chance that our opening day might get pushed back again. But at least the terms are locked in. We know there's going to be 60 games. They're going to be playing 40 
in their divisions, their rifle divisions, uh, and then at 20 games of interleague, so they'll be playing other teams from the National or American League, depending on what league right. they're in. Yeah. And then another bit of news from the world of sports, we have the NBA also announcing when they're going to resume play, being July 30th. The first game will be against uh, or the Utah Jazz versus uh, the New Orleans Pelican. There's also another game that day, right? I do believe there is another game. The kickoff game is uh, the Jazz and Pelicans. Right. You're going to see some of the best young talent on the Pelicans playing against the Jazz, who are a pretty established team. Yeah. Um, which should be an interesting game to kick it off. I don't think it's going to be quite the fireworks show that the MLB presented to us with the Nationals and the Yankees, mm-hmm. but it'll still be a, a good game. And this is part of the seeding process still, right? They're going to play eight regular season games to sort of set everything and figure out who's going to play whom in the playoffs? Yeah, so each team will play eight seeding games. The number eight seed will get a locked-in playoff spot if they're more than four games ahead, whoever the ninth place team is for the season because they're keeping the records and they're adding those eight games to it it has something to do with how many games in hand and stuff like that no not games in hand it's more related to at the final record if the person eighth place has four games they're at least four wins ahead in, in the season they automatically lock in that eighth seed if they don't then they have to do like a miniature playoff for that eighth seed which would require the ninth seed team to win twice in order to get the 8th seed spot or the 8th seed team to win once and then they clinch. Okay, see, this is part of the reason I have trouble with sports. Like, what the... Is that nonsense? And it's something that was created to, again, make another opportunity to be fair to whoever the ninth seed team is. Yeah, winning twice versus winning once is such an advantage. But, again, that team would have less wins than what the 8th seed team already has. Realistically, in my mind, if you're in the 8th seed because you have more wins than the ninth seed, done. Wrap it up. Let's get to the playoffs. Why do you have to have four more wins? That's so weird. Yeah, it's a weird stipulation, but it is something that they're doing. That, I think, is the weirdest part about the NBA's return plan. I'm totally on board with the eight seeding games because it gives teams an opportunity to scoot up in the standings. If the number nine seed had, like, more games in hand, I could maybe understand that, and that's why I asked that question, but this doesn't make any sense to me as someone who barely watches one and a half sports. This is weird. Well, it's a thing that's going to happen, so enjoy the weird. We'll see how it plays out. Right. But we're also starting to get the numbers from the 302 players who were tested, and it turned out that 16 of them actually tested positive for COVID. That's not bad. That's really not bad. But at the same time, how long have they been sick? Who have they come into contact with? Can you do any sort of contact tracing on them? Right. And that's another pickle to begin with, and some of the players are showing a little bit of concern about it. Blanking on the name of the Lakers player, but there was a player for the Lakers who basically came out and said he's not going to be showing up for the playoffs this year. It's voluntary. These guys don't have to show up. As long as it's voluntary, I don't mind. They are forfeiting the pay for those games and the playoff pay. Right. But at the same time, if you don't want to be cooped up like chickens away from your family... Well, and if you don't want the risk for yourself, because having had COVID, it's a monster. Because I've been healthy for a month and a half now, and my lungs still aren't the same. 
Yeah, and and so imagine being an athlete in that instance, and something that allows you to be as athletic as you are, like your lungs taking semi to permanent damage for the rest of your life, like you're you're not going to be able to perform the same level. Obviously, oxygen is kind of an important thing to sports. Yeah, yeah. So... So I can understand them, if it's voluntary, not opting in to the playoffs. And if they can deal with the pay cut, I don't see a problem. The only concern is running on bare bones teams versus a bare bones staff. Because if someone gets hurt or if someone else gets sick, you have all these other things to deal with in trying to play a season, partial season, and playoff. Yeah. I think that's about everything that we have for Actually, sports news, or do you have something else? I have something that, it's the last bit of sports news, and it was something I didn't necessarily want to talk about, because we've talked about so many political things in the podcast already. And, and honestly, guys, we are trying to avoid it as much as we can to an extent. Because while the politics are important, I know sports are also something that people use to distract themselves from the real world, and that's part of the reason we get so invested. But recently, there's been a lot of negative things happening with the owner of CrossFit, His name is Greg Glassman, and in the past few weeks, he has made light of the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd, and COVID, and said a lot of really negative things that I'm not going to repeat because I don't think it's necessary. But he resigned his position about two weeks ago, and then this past week, he's went ahead and sold CrossFit to someone who owns a box in... Boulder, Colorado. I I just love that it sounds like a homeless man bought the company because he owns a box. Well, CrossFit is all about, like, he-man superpower, no-nonsense, working out and being buff and tough, and so the box is where you work out. It's dumb, but anyway. I follow CrossFit to a degree because I've seen the documentaries about them on Netflix, and I like watching what the different workouts are and the different types of strength these people are showing. I think it's unnecessary and you're doing a lot of damage to your body, but I I'm okay with watching other people damage their bodies. I won't do it to mine. Yeah, my my favorite thing, honestly, CrossFit, is they look like they're rowing while they do pull-ups. I think that's the most <laughs> ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And, and one of my old employees was a, a big-time CrossFitter, and I enjoyed thoroughly like getting jokes about... How he does his burpees and how he does his his rowing pull-ups. It's always been so entertaining to me Anyone can fall to the ground. Anyway, that's not the whole point. The point (laughs) is, this is news that's been breaking for about a week now for him selling it. And the whole controversy has been happening for almost a month. And it's another political thing I didn't necessarily want to bring up. But CrossFit is a sport... I put air quotes around it because well, I don't know. They literally claim they have the fittest man and woman on the earth as their winners. So if you don't consider it a sport, that's kind of wrong. Right. And they're doing, or they have done, the regionals virtually. And that whole thing was sort of a mess. Because they were recording all the players as they were doing the workouts and doing commentary over it. And it, it was a 
technical mess. So it sounded like it had professional voiceovers the entire time? Yeah, it was so weird. And I don't know what this means for the actual CrossFit games, because those usually start up at the end of July, early August. And I usually watch them, but I don't know that I can. Obviously, that's probably not going to be something that's going to be televised this year. Let's let's be completely honest. Well, it was never on national yeah. television. It was one of those things you could download an app and watch, but... I don't know that I can, despite them selling the company and all this other stuff, because that all just seems like trying to save this thing that makes a lot of money. It doesn't feel like it's something that actually was a repercussion for something he said. It's more like saving face. And some PR person told him to sell the company so that he didn't go down with the ship. But that doesn't mean that the new ownership team isn't going to keep it in a quality standard that is above what obviously this guy left it in. Right, yeah. So it's sort of a waiting game at this point to see how A, the games happen with the COVID and B, how this new leadership team is going to manage CrossFit. And CrossFit's lost a lot of affiliations at this point and people pay like $3,000 a year to be affiliated with CrossFit. So Losing $3,000 a year from multiple organizations, I think, is what caused all this. But, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be interesting over the next few months just to kind of see how everything breaks down with it. Whether we're going to get a CrossFit Games. Who's going to actually show up for it? Because a lot of the major participants have already said that they don't want anything to do with it, period. But well, maybe now that Greg Glassman's gone, they'll recant that statement and be a part of it all again. Well, there are also people who've said not necessarily that they don't mind what happened politically, but because of COVID concerns, they're not going to go to the game. So it's going to be less who's the fittest on earth this year and who's the fittest of the people who have shown up. Yeah. So we'll just have to have to wait and see. There is a little bit of news as far as books go. There's not a ton going on in the book world this past week, which happens sometimes. But I think the biggest news was George R.R. R. Martin came out and said that he hopes to finish book six out of seven of the A Song of Ice and Fire series next year. This is sort of big since book five came out in 2011. Yeah, he he's kind of like the creators of EA Skate waiting like eight or nine years to come out with a video game that realistically didn't need that many changes. So it's like, why don't you just keep working on what you got? I think, you know, when he first started the series in 96, he was on a normal writing schedule. It was two years, it was three years, five years, six years. And with books that are that big, I can understand taking five or six years. But I think at this point, having done the show and everything else he's got going, if you wait too long, it's going to be one of those things where you don't live up to the hype just because it's been so long. Not necessarily that it's bad or that it didn't go the direction people wanted, but that they expect more just because of how long you've been working on it. Yeah. And actually on Reddit, someone said that they're wary of actually calling this news because there's a chance he won't meet that deadline that he set for himself to finish it next year. Or you're still going to be waiting no matter what. The, the big dilemma for me is, as somebody who's relatively new to reading books in large portions and like going through whole series and things like that to me it would frustrate me just because I would be stuck in a story plot and it's like the longest cliffhanger episode you've ever watched right. you know and then 
the frustration would be that I'd have to reread the book before the new one came out from the previous book just so I could get my head back in the right world. Well, for me, I actually reread books and series before the next one comes out, no matter how long it's been or no matter how far into the series it is. So for me, my biggest version of this was rereading the Throne of Glass series before the last book came out. Which was actually a good move because the last book was a thousand pages long and had a lot of little details. But I just think the people who are writing articles about this so-called news are completely ignoring the fact that he said it would be finished in 2021, more likely than not. And that doesn't mean published, that doesn't mean edited, that doesn't mean bound or anything like that. Just means he's done writing it. Done writing it in a first draft. Right. So... I think I would be wary about calling this news to a degree because while it's good to get an update, like Brandon Sanderson does these updates too, where you just fill out a blog post and say, this is my progress so far and blah, 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 trying to keep people up on what you're working on. Yeah, keep the hype alive. Right. But at the same time, this doesn't necessarily mean anything solid. Yeah, it's just, I I don't know how fans can stay hyped for this long, especially after the Game of Thrones ending that everybody hated so much. I'm going to be honest. I read the first book for a class when I was in college, and I hated it and never read anymore and never got into the show. So, And, you know, there are some people who don't like it, but more than I want to say half of the people who read it are just absolutely head over heels for the series. So I don't think hype's going to be the problem. I think what you're delivering to your audience is going to be a problem more than anything. And speaking of things thrown back to 1996, Animorphs is getting a movie adaptation, which who would have ever seen that uh, coming? That's that, that sound is my opinion on the subject. I, well, I, I read a couple of the books as a kid and it was kind of like, well, that's the thing. Well, it was coming out in 1996 to 2001, so a solid five years of books coming out. And these were shorter books. There's a lot of them. They made a god-awful TV show about it too, didn't they? They made a TV show about it, and that's the only way I know Animorphs, because (laughs) I didn't want to read the books, because that was my brother's thing. Are you kidding me? Animorphs at the Scholastic Book Fair were the jam. That was my brother's thing. My brother and I were not allowed to like the same thing, so if he was into Animorphs, I had to be into something else. So... (laughs) I saw an episode of a TV, of the TV show once, and all I remember is them being in a cave and having to pretend to be overtaken by these alien species, and then that's all I know. And, and the sad thing is, I know I've read multiple of those <laughs> books, and I couldn't even begin to tell you what I remember from them, because they were just so out there, well, and just, I don't know, it's just I weird. like the premise, based on what I've read, which is just basically you've got five kids who have powers to turn into what animal they've touched. And that's, you know, for the late 90s, that's pretty good premise. But then there's also this side sort of part where they're worried about being overtaken by aliens. And like, it sounds a little weird, but also it sounds like the 90s. It's 100% weird. Let's just call it what it is. (laughs) It was the 90s and TV shows... If you go back and watch some of them, especially the stuff we watch as children, it's like, wow, did I really watch this? Yeah, I learned that by going on to Disney+. Plus. Why was I into the shows I watched? Like, so weird? My goodness. Like, (laughs) just 
she she made us watch through most of that, and I've watched a few of the episodes, and it I was just, so weird. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird, and we'll call it what it was. But for this round, the movie is from Scholastic Entertainment and Picture Start, I think, is the company. And on top of actually getting a new movie, they're looking at doing a comic book adaptation, which could be done well if you do the right art style. And then right before the release of the movie, I think Scholastic is doing this like retro tin box set of like the first six books in the Animorph series. So all you Animorph collectors out there, get ready because <laughs> you're going to get the best book set you ever did from Scholastic Book Fair. I don't know. I think this might actually be targeted for people who are young than us and weren't born when the first books were coming right. out because then it's retro which something that came out when i was alive should not be called retro yeah, that's weird look at the craze over the last few years of tamagotchis coming back it's oh the most ridiculous goodness. crap i've ever seen i feel a thousand years old yeah but i don't know i think the movie could be good i think it has to be done right I think if it's done in, like, the Sonic style of storytelling, you're going to get an audience way younger than us. Yeah. But then if you do it in a more adult way, I think there's a way to make that into something multiple generations can like. And that's it for the major book news. But I found a couple funny stories when I was looking for book news, and I had to share them. Because there's a library in Michigan that had to actually tell the patrons not to microwave their books. Yeah, you know, because uh, COVID is a thing and microwaving a book is not. Well, they already quarantined their books for three days. So as soon as they come in, they're set to the side to sort of deal with that. And then people are checking out books, putting them in the microwave, and then it's got the radio frequency tags in the back. And that's what's causing the books to burn whenever they're in the microwave. Yeah, because it's metal and they start to pop when they catch on fire. Right. So uh, basically the moral of the story is don't cook your books. Right. You can cook things based on food in the book you're reading, but please do not cook your actual book. Correct. Yeah, that, when you told me about that news, I was just like, it's so common sense. It's like throwing a bag of Pop-Tarts in your microwave. You don't leave it in the foil. You <laughs> throw them out, you know? Who microwaves their Pop-Tarts? Monsters. <laughs> anyway, the last one is in Mooresville, Indiana, a police officer recovered 39 stolen library books. So at least you know there are some good police out there. Yeah, this this story also kind of cracks me up a little bit. It kind of reminds me of the people that will steal like burner caps off of our gas ranges at my workplace. You know, That's it's just so like weird. it's such a stupid thing to take. Like, well, I mean, you can borrow it whenever you want. You want to check it back out? You can do that later. I don't know. You can literally walk in and recheck out a book from the library as long as there's not someone behind you on it. Yeah. yeah. But the man confessed. The books are valued at $1,000. And I think what is most interesting about this story is in the photo of all the books and the librarians and you have the police officer there, the most notable books I saw was there was one of the American flag. And I don't know what the book's about. I just saw a giant American flag on there. And then there was a book about DNA and a book about dinosaurs. And I just want to tell this man, please do not try... To do a Jurassic Park. So what you're saying is you don't want the American Dinosaur Revolution to occur? I really don't. (laughs) Because just because you can doesn't mean you should. And on top of that, there are movies warning us about this. Don't do it. There are a lot of movies warning us about it. And there are remade movies about us, you know, doing this. So seriously, we don't need a Dinosaur Revolution in 2020. We already have enough things going on. (laughs) 
And then I decided it would probably be a good idea to discuss the books that are coming out in July because we're going to have a break here with me taking that trip to Oklahoma. So Yeah, I'm I losing my wife for a week and... Possibly more. A week yeah. and a half-ish, possibly. So I just thought I'd go ahead and list what I consider to be the top five-ish books that are coming out in July. And these are based on my preference for books, obviously. And the number one for me happening on July 7th is The Damned by Renee Audier. It's book two of the Beautiful series. And it's basically vampires in 19th century New Orleans. Reminds me a lot of the show The Originals, but at the same time, the vampires are sort of not as obvious as they are in that show. And I'm interested to see what happens next because when I was rereading book one, there was this major plot point and twist at the end that I had completely forgotten about. Like it ends on a cliffhanger and somehow I'd forgotten the cliffhanger in between my first read and rereading it in May. So I'm excited to see what happens next. And then book two is a Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green happening July 7th. And it's the last book in the An Absolutely Remarkable Thing duology. And by the way, he needs to stop naming books because I can never pronounce them. And and Hank, if you want to come on to the show and uh, discuss our hatred for, or I shouldn't say hatred, that's a strong word, distaste for your titles because they're hard to say. I mean, they are great titles as concepts, but if you have to say them over and over, it's really hard to pronounce. Right. But book one also ended on a cliffhanger, so I'm really interested into seeing where this goes. And it's basically first contact with aliens, but there's multiple layers to the story because it's also sudden fame, virality of like this video, and suddenly she's super popular and goes on all these shows and advocates for the aliens that they're having first contact with and sort of the difficulty in America where everyone's expected to have an opinion about something and staunchly stand there in their opinion and just argue it to death. We have this whole division in America. So it's not just this whole first contact with aliens, but it's got multiple layers to it. So I think it's really well done. I think it's good to have in this time of social media and constantly needing likes and comments and all this other stuff. That's gonna be fun to read. And then I came across a standalone novel that I hadn't heard of before and I actually am kind of interested in. I might pick it up, I might not, but it sounds really good. It's How to Disappear by Gillian McAllister. It's a psychological suspense novel. And basically, this girl speaks up because she sees a crime happen and she has to go into witness protection. And so she has to make sure she doesn't contact the people that she's had to leave behind. And so I like this and it's what I really wanted out of Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn because I wanted it to be one of those things where you're having to think two steps ahead of the people who are behind you and in Gone Girl it's behind her as in they're trying to find her but in this one it's more along the lines of staying hidden from the people who are trying to kill you so that you can't testify against them. 
So I'm really interested in possibly picking this one up. I know I'm not big on mystery thrillers, but I think this is sort of the one like little niche section of those books. It's like right I, up your alley. Yeah. And I don't know what that says about me, but I'm interested. The next to last book that I'm going to talk about is a book that I guess had been in the works for a while, but it's sort of poignant that it's coming out this month. It's coming out July 28th, so exactly a month from now. And it's it's about this girl whose father has been put in jail, and he's a black man on death row. And so she is going to basically the Innocence Project, but they call it something else in the book to try to get her dad out of prison because he's innocent and there are only 267 days left before he's supposed to be killed. And so there's this whole injustice in America and assuming the worst out of people of color and not really having a full case against him but him still getting charged for the crime anyway. And then there's some other stuff that happens after that but I don't want to mention it because it's kind of a spoiler for the rest of the book. and. This is a problem with books that are coming out lately. It's that basically the back is the whole novel and they tell you all the major plot points to get you to read it. And then by the end, you're not surprised by anything. Um, I don't know if I said the title. It's This Is My America by Kim Johnson coming out July 28th. And it's a standalone. Sounds like an interesting book, you know, kind of relative to current. Right. Yeah, it's got that political side to it. It's also got sort of this advocacy for innocent people who are being put to death and all that. So I'm excited for that one. I'm surprised by how much I'm interested in this just because political stuff is normally not up my alley. I usually use books as escapism, so a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. But in sci-fi and fantasy, you have all these political machinations, so I don't know why I wouldn't be interested in that in more of a contemporary novel. Yeah, I was going to say there's definitely been some books that have uh, had some pretty strong politics and like dystopian-style stuff that you've been reading about in the past. So, Well, even lately, because yeah. this next release I'm going to talk about, I got an arc of, thank God, because The Faithless Hawk by... Margaret Owen got pushed back. It was originally going to be released July 28th, so the same day as the last book, but right after I read the ARC and published my review for it, it turned out that they had changed the release date, so it's going to be August 18th now. Yeah, I know that you really enjoyed that book, and it seems like, as well too, it's been kind of a busy week for art for you. You've been getting them like crazy, it seemed. Yeah, I, I got approved for three in two days, which is not normal. So that was pretty nice. And this was one of them. Technically, I wasn't approved for it. It's one of those books that you can't ask for, you can wish for. And a certain number of wishes get granted, and I was one of them. So that was nice. Basically, The Merciful Crow is the first book in the series, in the duology. And it's about a cast in this fantasy world. And you have the phoenixes who are the royal cast, and then you have the crows who are the very bottom of the cast system. And they have to deal with the plague victims because they're the only ones who are immune to the plague. And so they basically walk the roads and go wherever the plague beacon is lit and deal with the bodies. And they're really trampled down, beaten up, abused, murdered, all this stuff. Very political, like we said. But in the first one, you have to deal with this queen from a different cast is suddenly thrust into the Phoenix cast, and she just keeps grabbing for power. 
and more political machinations and that sort of thing. So book two sort of picks up at a weird point where safety has kind of been assured for the people we were worried about at the end of the first one. But then all of a sudden you find yourself in a position where they're not really safe. There was just the illusion of safety and then they have to work from there. As for what I've been reading, I only read two books this week, which for most people that's a really good week. Got a look of shock on my face, <laughs> only two books. And for me, not so much. I normally read at least three, sometimes four or five, depending on if I'm reading novellas or regular length books. I think it's happening because the last book I read the week before was that witch book called Burn Mark by Laura Powell, and it really put me in a slump. So I'm glad that I managed to read some stuff. I think the only reason I managed to read anything at all was because that arc wish got granted through NetGalley for the Faithless Hawk, and I immediately picked it up. Yeah, I got you right back on the horse almost <laughs> within hours. Right, and I finished it in basically two sittings, I think, one or two sittings, and I ended up giving it 4.5 stars. So... It's even better than the first book, and I think that's because we actually see this person who's the main character in the first one go into the palace under disguise, so it's like she's a spy, and she's sort of working at dealing with all the political problems. I like spies, apparently. I didn't know. It's a, a new fad you're going through, and you didn't even realize it. Well, and then... I say that because the second book I picked up was about a girl having to save her father from people who have kidnapped him, and she kind of has to spy and be her with Yeah, I, on the I think all week I was comparing it to kind of like Taken, but in reverse. Right. So this is The Cruelty by Scott Bergstrom. Again, I don't recommend anyone buys this. I really don't recommend that anyone picks it up. I think that he said a lot of bad things about women and women's bodies, and it just, it rubs you all wrong. And the only reason I read this is because he already had my money before I even knew about this. So it was already on my shelf. I might as well read it. And I'm in this weird place because basically this girl is a diplomat's daughter. And so she spends her life traveling from embassy to embassy in different countries around the world. And she ends up in New York with her father and she's just living her life and he has to go on a business trip and he doesn't come home and she's told he's been kidnapped. And then the company that he works for admits he's actually CIA, he's not a diplomat. And that that's basically his cover story and that they're gonna do everything they can to find him. Two weeks later, they say, we can't find him. That's the end of that. And so she takes it on herself through things he's left in the house to find clues to sort of pick up and work her way into this system that he's in to save him. But there's a lot of fallacies in this because basically you have this untrained 17-year-old girl who's been pampered all her life suddenly try to be a spy. Yeah, and I was going to say, it sounds a little fake to me, just because it's like how... It's so far-fetched. Yeah, how does a CIA agent who has hidden everything of his career, his entire life, from everyone... Leave all these of a sudden clues at his house? these things like, there's like, oh, and this pen that opens up and has a well, note like... Well, not clues stuff. like that. Basically, the neighbor had a book of his, and she has to work out a code through this book and stuff, so... It's so far-fetched. And then on top of that, there's some misogyny in here that I could not abide because she basically is training with someone 
who she knows through this set of circumstances that make no sense. And as she's getting thinner, leaner, stronger, faster, the author just starts using all these really glowing terms for her and her body. And by the way, this is a male author writing from a female's point of view and talking in this sort of, it's not lewd, but it's sort of crossing a line about her body as she's getting thinner, stronger, faster, whatever. And it sort of reads misogynistic and a little bit ableist. And for these reasons, I had to rate it 1.5 stars, despite the fact that the plot moves really fast and you can get through this book pretty quickly. Because again, I only read this in like two and a half days. So this was a really easy read, but despite that, I just, I couldn't rate it any higher than 1.5 just because of those problems. For the good side of things, so there is this one particular scene towards the end of the book that I just really liked. It was her just being this strong, tough woman, and she ends up murdering a bunch of men who had just purchased women at this club that she was working at undercover and basically after all the sales went through she went and killed them all so that that was actually pretty fun to see also sounds like a scene from taken <laughs> <laughs> does it i don't know a L- little bit so this one was really weird and like in the whole like thread and theme of the novel it's supposed to be about like duality of man or duality of woman and how you know she's becoming this morally gray character the further she gets into this whole thing and she keeps doing things that are bad but at the same time she's doing it for good reasons but then also you have this twist where she's enjoying the bad things she's doing and so like I like morally gray characters and I think all of that's fun but I think it really could have been done in a better way so for me that was sort of I don't know like I enjoyed it but I hated it and I can't rate it any higher than a 1.5 because of all these problems yeah and of course I already said I'm not giving him any more of my money so I'm not gonna get the next book I'm not even gonna take it out of the library because those numbers also have an effect on authors so that's pretty much it for that storyline for me which I'm fine with it's a decent stopping point and this week you actually finished Chamber of Secrets book two down it's in, five more to go it's in the books um, the puns keep coming and they don't stop coming <laughs> but yeah I finished it I think I was telling you earlier in the week I just felt like nothing was really happening as fast as it did in the first book which you then corrected me like listen the front of the story of the first book was a little bit slower and I'm like yeah but then everything happened and it was just go 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 right whereas when I first started reading for the week at chapter 11 I kind of felt it wasn't it was pretty much like but type of you know well rhythm at that point i think it's because you have to keep waiting for these different almost like steps to get to the end of the story like it, i was it, gonna say different petrifications to happen but yeah you have to wait for everything to fall in line to get to where you're trying to get to in the story it's the same way with all books yeah but I think everyone can pretty much agree that book two of Harry Potter is not their favorite. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter where you think it falls in your favorites of Harry Potter, but it's definitely not your favorite. Yeah, so far, first book is my favorite. But yeah. I'm two books in, so please cut me some slack, folks. Yeah, um, we'll see. But it just, it seemed like the process of getting the Polyjuice Potion together, ingredients-wise, like, took an eternity. And I know that over those few chapters, it was over a month's time between everything. So, well, like, it took time to do everything. 
Well, also because you have to have a month for the lace wing flies, I think, yes, to yeah. stew. And so, God, how did I pull that out? Jeez. Anyway, you have to let it stew for a month. So that's part of the reason. And it's kind of buying them time to get everything else and make all the things come together for the polyjuice. Yeah, and that, that was kind of partially like the polyjuice obviously started a little earlier on in the book than where I started this week in chapter 11. But I thought one of my favorite scenes was the the swelling potions when oh, Harry yeah. throws the firework into the cauldron. Was it, I want to say it was Goyle? Goyle. Yeah, mm-hmm. threw it into Goyle's. And, and while Snape is busy trying to deflate everybody's faces, more or less. See, that's the silliness that I love that you just, you don't get in all the movies, which we're going to talk about next week. But I just, stuff like this is why I love this series so much. Yeah, and so, and then you kind of see, like, the more sneaky, sleuthy side of Hermione, like, scooting in to go steal the things. She... Which, Hermione stealing something? Like, my mind exploded. I was like, what? Here's the thing. Hermione belongs in Gryffindor because of all the stupid nonsense she does. And, I mean, she is a more morally gray character than she's given credit for. Oh, especially in the movies. But again, next week. Yeah. Or or the next episode. Probably not next week. Mm -hmm. And and in turn, because of all the attacks that are going on with the petrifications and things like that, uh, they also start up the dueling club, which... I was excited about it. I'm like, yes, action. And then it was like... More silliness instead. Yeah. And so um, they're like pairing up everybody. And then like Hermione gets stuck with this girl from Slytherin who's a giant... Nelson Bolstrode. Yes. Yeah. In comparison to her. And then Harry gets paired up with Draco. Yeah, yeah. Which I think was fantastic to an extent because you finally start to see their rivalry really get more heated, I guess, more so than anything. And then, you know, one of them makes their leg keep twitching or like jerking is the way it's described as one of their uh, attack-based spells on one another. And then the other one responds with tickling. Yeah. I'm like... I have to say, especially in these first like three and a half, four books, it's going to be sillier than I think you're going to 100% appreciate as a 30-year-old man. But I think from basically halfway through book four to the end of the series, you're going to get the darkness and action that you're looking for. You just, you have to wait a little bit to get to that, like, really action-y dark place. Well, and you got a little bit of dark when they actually get paired up to fight in front of everybody in the dueling club. And Draco gets whispered in the ear by Snape, I'm sure... He's like, hey, try this spell out. It's going to be real cool. I just want to know how he can whisper a spell in Draco's ear and he can suddenly pull it off in one go. Because that's not how magic is seen to work throughout the series. Yeah, but, like, the argument would be Draco being a pure-blood, you know, wizard. Excuse me. Listen, listen. And that could have helped the cause, possibly. Or maybe it was something the two of them were working on throughout the week. We don't know that. I I would rather go with the second thing, because the other one makes you sound like a blood purist. And we don't excuse that in this house. And so he makes a snake appear. And Gilroy Lockhart immediately is like, I know how to handle this. Uh, and pisses the snake off even more, mm-hmm. and it starts going after, it's a Hufflepuff, right? Justin Finch Fletchley? Yes. That's a mouthful of a name to say. JFF. Um, JFF, for short, yeah. And Harry starts to speak in parcel tongue, doesn't realize he is... A parcel mouth, yeah. A parcel mouth, and, well, he realizes he is, because obviously he's had scenes where, you know... 
snakes and things have happened before. But He's just sort of gone, oh, that's weird, right. moving on. And so, like, he doesn't realize it. And obviously later in the chapter, Ron's like, dude, you weren't speaking out loud. You were speaking in snake sounds. Yeah, yeah. But he saves Justin Finch Fletchley. The only problem is he did it in front of this large group of people. And everybody knows the heir of Slytherin speaks in parcel tongue. Well, Slytherin himself, yeah. Yeah, and that the heir of Slytherin also more than likely does as well. Mm-hmm. And so you start to get, like, the rumor mill gun-helling about Harry being the heir of Slytherin. Hogwarts is big on gossip. Oh, seriously, gigantic on it. And, and it only is made worse by the fact that at the end of the chapter, Justin is found petrified. Yeah. <laughs> so... It's like... It just seems even worse for Harry. The You're timing, always there. The timing could not have been worse because he was there and Peeves finds uh, Justin petrified and starts like flying through the, the corridors going like, Harry's over here type of thing. And it's just I like, just don't know how Peeves isn't one of everyone's favorite characters in this series. There are so many good ones, but he is just chef's kiss. Yeah. And so that leads to a meeting with... Harry and Dumbledore related to Dumbledore basically going like, I know you're not the heir of Slytherin, relax. Um, I think also you have this sort of hint, but you don't know it's a hint as to what's going on. Yeah. Because of Hagrid coming in about the dead chickens. Yeah, and 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 that's a whole other scene to itself. It's weird as can get out. But then that pretty much wraps up chapter 11. So chapter 12, you run into... Them actually taking the Polyjuice Potion, we're finally there. Here comes the action, right? Wrong. Put a break on it. Because they end up taking the Polyjuice Potion. And they um, have a conversation and that's about it. Yeah, and, and they turn into Crab and Goyle. And I think the only funny scene to come out of it is while they're trying to find the Slytherin common room. They walk up to a Ravenclaw. Stupid. She's wearing mm. her robes. She's, you know, it has the house symbol on it. How Except you... in the books, it doesn't. Okay. In the books, there's no house emblem or colors. You're See, just wearing like black robes. And so that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And that make, that scene makes more sense if you know that. Yeah. But also, you need to pay attention to who that Ravenclaw is because that comes into play later. Yeah, it, it's, is it the... Prefect? Is that right? Yes, that's Okay, so Penelope, right? We'll yeah. figure that out a little bit later. We'll talk about Penelope. Penelope Clearwater, yeah. Yeah, she's pretty connected in some of the plot lines mm-hmm. towards the end of the book. And so he and Ron ask the wrong person, basically, and that's, that's entertaining amongst itself. Mm-hmm. And then they get there, and they run, or they're starting to walk further away from this person, and then they run into Draco. And Draco's like, what are you two idiots doing, basically? Like, yeah, yeah. Where, where have you been, you know? And so um, they they end up going there uh, to the Slytherin common room, and the password is the word pure blood, which is... Not okay in this it's house. It's not shocking that that's what Slytherin <laughs> yeah, is yeah. utilizing as their password. And they have a conversation, and the most guilt they can more or less get Draco to admit to, because they think he's the heir of Slytherin, mm-hmm. is I'd help him if I could. Yeah, it's sort of a letdown there, but that sort of happens pretty often with Harry's hunches. Yeah. He'll just hold on to it until he's completely and totally proven wrong. Yeah, and then you get them coming back. Like, they towards the end of the conversation, they start changing back. So they're like, <laughs> we've got to go. <laughs> Bye. Bye, and then they just leave. 
I just want to know the conversation that the actual Crab and Goyle had later on that night with Draco. Yeah. Like, we were eating, and then I don't know what happened. Yeah, and it's believable at that point, because Draco's like, y'all were stupid. You know, <laughs> like, absolute idiots. And so you, they come back to the bathroom, Money Myrtle's uh, living space, as, yes, we, yes. as we find out. And Hermione's still in the stall, and they're trying to get her persuaded to come out, and then she finally does. And, and she's, she's a cat. Half cat, half human. And so they take her to the medical wing to go see Pomfrey and hopefully fix the lovely issues that are going on. I mean, you gotta appreciate Madame Pomfrey. She's not asking questions. She's just dealing with whatever the the kids are handing Oh, her. yeah, whatever nonsense the children are getting up to. It's like, well, I guess we get to deal with this. <laughs> She and, needs an order of Merlin first class. And then, honestly, my favorite, favorite part of that chapter is the very end when they're walking through the halls and you have Fred and George mocking the fact that people think Harry's the heir of Slytherin. Mm. Look out, the heir of Slytherin coming through type stuff. And seriously just, evil wizard. Seriously evil wizard, yeah. And it's just priceless. That was, like, such a funny scene because you know they know he's not the heir of Slytherin. Right. But they're literally just playing along to scare the crap out of everybody else. Well, and it's not only sort of making fun of everyone, but it's saying to Harry, I'm on your side. But at the same time, they're being their usual jokesters and you don't get enough of it in the movies. You really don't. I appreciate Fred and George so much more in the books. Yeah. Uh, and then in 13, again, kind of a weirder one. And I know that you you liked it just because uh, Valentine's Day was in, in chapter 13. There, there are so many good things that happened during Valentine's Day this year because Gilderoy Lockhart's just being an absolute weirdo, which I love. He's uh, always a little weird, but especially weird. And then you've got the fact that Hermione is one of the people who sent Gilderoy uh, Yeah, Valentine. that and everybody, all the other girls that are swooning over him. Right. And then you've got Jenny's Valentine to Harry, which is, like, it's so embarrassing, but it's also so cute. He's literally mugged by the dwarves <laughs> to get it. I, I literally have in my notes... He's Valentine's assaulted. Day mugging from dwarves. Uh, you know, Harry and, Potter assaulted by... <laughs> by, uh, you know... Cupid. Through, yeah, yeah, sure, Cupid dwarves <laughs> dressed as Cupid. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting scene, that's for sure. And secondhand embarrassment level 100. I was oh, right there yeah. with it. Like, I was like, dude, run, run. I also just feel bad for Jenny, because, like, her poem is bad. Yeah, it by no means good. Eyes are as green as a fresh pickled toad. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, so, so romantic. romantic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as as you can tell, we're married. Um, we're having the same thoughts there. But then the other big things in the, this were that he finds the diary in Morning Myrtle's bathroom yeah. entitled TM Riddle. Well, it's just the name engraved. Yeah. Right. And they find it super weird that it's just empty. Like, mm -hmm. there's nothing written in it. And they're like, why do you have a diary if he's not going to write in it? And later in the chapter, you find out that there's conversations that are being had from the past. More right, or less, yeah. Because the book is enchanted. And you start to see Tom Riddle trying to put the blame on Hagrid mm -hmm. a little bit and put the suspicion on him. Which, obviously, come on, it's Hagrid. He wouldn't literally harm a fly, let well, alone 
you know. He would harm a fly to feed his giant spiders. Spiders. Yeah. Anyway, I have a problem with the system that does list to Hagrid because you have Armando Dippet as the headmaster. And is he not smart enough to realize people are being petrified and not being eaten by a giant spider? Like, you would <laughs> think the logic would settle in there, but I think the fact that Hagrid is sort of this outcast in his year for obvious reasons, and reasons that get explained in book four in a more obvious way, they just decide to kick him out. Yeah, and, you know, they're persuaded by Dumbledore, who at the time was a teacher, to basically make him a gameskeeper, which, you know, start the training for that, which, yes, is better than being completely just eliminated. But I think this memory just sort of shows how manipulative TM Riddle is. Yeah. And him showing the memory to Harry to sort of influence him. And then rolling into chapter 14, obviously between chapter 13, 14, and 13, you hear a lot of conversations with him talking to Ron about like what is happening with this book and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And then going into chapter 14, so the evening before the Quidditch match, um, Harry's coming back what I, from what I would assume is like another practice because it seems like they're never ending this year, the practices. Well, Oliver Wood is his captain, so I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And he finds that the journal is gone. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the only people that would know the password to the common room is uh, Gryffindor, so he knows somebody in Gryffindor stole it. Yeah. And I think if you're reading this for the first time and you have no concept of the Harry Potter storyline, that is a very interesting point because everyone up till this point sort of assumes that as le- at least as a reader, that Gryffindors can do no wrong. You know Harry's innocent, so obviously he's innocent and not the one doing this. And then you also have this whole weird thing where readers think that Gryffindors are brave and perfect and yeah. so on. Yeah, and then you obviously start to have Harry and Ron suspecting more and more that there's a chance that Hagrid is the heir for just a little bit. And then... Again, grasping at incorrect straws. Yeah, in fairness, they were given false information. Hashtag fake news in in that instance a little bit, like... No, and let's move on. Okay. Also in this chapter, you have two more victims that are petrified. Uh, This time it's Miss Granger who, God, she just can't cut a break this year, it seems, you know? And then, as we stated earlier, Penelope Clearwater, you know, and in my notes, who is the Ravenclaw prefect... Also, Percy's girlfriend, as but we find out later. But you haven't found out at this point, <laughs> right. yeah. And so they go to see and just kind of see that she's petrified. They don't really get any information at that point in time. And in response, they're like, well, we need to go talk to Hagrid. He clearly knows something about what's going on. Because yeah. we know he does because Tom Riddle told us. Well, at the very least, he was there when the previous petrifications were happening. Right. So uh, they used the invisibility cloak and worked their way back down to Hagrid's house. Since at the time, the only way to get around is escorted by teacher. Yeah, yeah. So they sneak off to his house and start having a conversation with Hagrid about it. And Hagrid starts to explain things. And then things happen. He gets so, taken to ask uh, the two of them... Put the invisibility clip back on. The head of the Ministry of Magic shows up to haul Hagrid off to Azkaban. Then the second mic drop comes because you couldn't handle it with just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucius Malfoy shows up with a petition signed by the governors, the governors of <clears throat> the school. And they are asking him to step down temporarily, possibly forever, 
depending on, you know, solutions that are gathered related to the chamber being opened. Yeah. I just, I think Hagrid's had to deal with a lot, because going to Azkaban, as you'll learn in book three, is not a regular prison, and it's very scary, and it's very bad, and I think it's horrible that he got blamed for the first one, and blamed for the second one, because he was blamed for the first one. With literally no evidence, and that's that's the crazy part about it. I'm sure at some point we're going to discuss the whole justice system in the magical community, because it's real messed up, but... Yes, he gets taken away with no evidence. And so, like, not to sound like the crazy person getting arrested, Hagrid is just blurting random things out as he's being arrested and taken to Azkaban. You know, as he's leaving, he's shouting at Harry and Ron, who nobody knows is there because they're invisible, to take care of Fang and to... Follow spiders. And also to follow the spiders. Like, I just can picture the people that are escorting him away just going, like... Okay. Spiders? What is this crazy lunatic talking about? Yeah, he definitely deserves to be locked up. (laughs) Right, right. So it was just kind of a weird ending to the chapter. Well, and like this is sort of the like major scene happening that sort of lays foundation for the rest of the story. And it's some action. And then Harry and Ron are walking through the halls one day, and they see a couple spiders walking directly towards the forest. Yeah. And that kind of triggers... It definitely triggers two of Ron's worst fears. Spiders. Spiders, because Fred and George are monsters, and also the Forbidden Forest, which he hasn't been in yet. Right. And and so it's it's definitely funny to watch him just be like, oh god, like Ron so far for the most part has been like, bravery, be brave. And now he's just like, scary Ron. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I like the little backstory you get about what Fred and George did to make Ron scared of spiders. But at the same time, I like seeing Ron scared. <laughs> that sounds a little awful, but... It adds depth to his character. Yeah. And so they eventually end up going into the forest and they are walking along with Fang and they run into the car. Yeah. Um, you know, which is kind of funny. The Ford Anglia strikes again. It's become wild. Yeah, it's a, a wild forest car. <laughs> but uh, they are kind of like, okay, well, we'll just keep walking along and use it as a light source because its lights are still working. And yeah. And that's where he ends up meeting Aragog. Right, so, well, we'll rewind it just a little bit because they randomly meet three horse-sized spiders as the description, which for Ron, I could only imagine was terrifying. That's like me meeting horse-sized snakes. Yeah. I'm not there for that. Yeah, and they escort him, or escort them, I should say, to meet Aragog. Yeah. And at first Aragog's like, eat them, just kill them, you know, as a response, they're like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. We know your boy Hagrid. And he's like, okay, I'll hear you out. Mm-hmm. And hears him out, ends up telling him that, you know, the only reason I had to leave the castle was because they thought I killed some girl in a bathroom. But I didn't. Yeah. And I didn't. But I've lived well out here with my family. And my family needs to eat. So eat them anyways. <laughs> and the Fort Anglia comes zipping in to, to save, save the, the day. day yet again. And they stuff Fang in as quickly as they can and the car is off. Poor Fang. And that pretty much wraps up that chapter because the flying car gets them out of the forest. And mm-hmm. then, you know, that's the end. So, And so we continue back into chapter 16. You start to see more of the teachers escorting the students everywhere. Yeah. And Harry and Ron basically 
bait Gilroy Lockhart into leaving them mm-hmm. <laughs> through the group. Like, I'm sure you've got more important type things to do. Why are you escorting us children around? Well, dealing with his narcissistic side, yeah. And so they split off from the group and get caught red-handed by McGonagall. Uh, Minerva is on the spot with catching people, it seems. And they quickly lie to her and say, we're going to see Hermione in the medical wing. And so... Then you see the emotional side of McGonagall. Yeah, McGonagall's like, oh, that's so sweet. You know, go ahead. Go, go right ahead. She completely Mm -hmm. believes the lie, which is a weak point for McGonagall because, you know, normally she wouldn't. I think it's just her being emotional about it because she had to deal with Harry's parents and their friends. And I, she's seen a thing or two. Yeah. And so they get there, and they take a closer look and see that Hermione's holding a piece of paper in her hand, petrified. Solving all your problems, even when she's petrified. <laughs> Seriously, like, who could have thought that that would have been the case? And she's holding a piece of paper on it. It says basilisk. Then it also, underneath, underlined pipes. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that she would ruin a library book. That's rude. Yeah. <laughs> and so, at that point, they are going and kind of like following Lockhart and then they find out that somebody else has been petrified and so or no not petrified sorry this is where Ginny was taken yeah uh there's a new note on the wall and the teachers call an emergency meeting and Ron and Harry are in the teachers like lounge basically the room or office I think is what they refer to it as in the book and they're hiding behind everybody's robes <laughs> while the meeting's going on um and like they're like basically the teachers are trying to volunteer Lockhart like you're the teacher in dark arts go handle it well I mean snickering like obviously they're just trying to get him out of the way oh yeah they're trolling him basically Yeah, yeah. yeah Ron and Harry are like that's a great idea so they go and hunt down Lockhart and they're like come with us and Lockhart admits to them right there on the spot that he's never defeated a dark creature ever right and he's taking down these people's stories and then wiping their minds like i said he's a good researcher and he's good with memory charms and i think that's the reason that he was a ravenclaw is because he has a thirst to know these things but then he just does the wrong thing he's a little grimy though like kind of slitherny a little bit with the fact that he's like stealing people's stories to make money men are not only good or evil yeah that's all I have to say. And so they're basically kidnap Lockhart. Yeah. And force him to come down to the women's or the girls' restroom with Moaning Myrtle there. And they find a pipe with the Slytherin mark on it. And so Harry speaks his parcel tongue and tells it to open and it opens. And then Lockhart's like, na 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 And he tries to make a spell and they gosh what's the spell name they, they disarm him yes they okay. disarm him but there's an actual name for the spell expelliarmus well, bingo it that's not the name of the spell that is the incantation they use to use the spell it is actually called the disarming charm or spell got it so they use that and knocks the wand into harry's hand so now gilroy lockhart is basically magicless and they go down into the tunnel and he sees an opportunity to steal ron's wand and wipe their memories only problem is we all know ron's wand this year has been notorious for doing things not right yeah and he wipes his own memory. And that's when the scene where they found, like, the giant snake skin yeah, yeah. left behind. And at that point, Harry's like, well, we can't leave him alone. He's worthless. He's defenseless at this point in time. 
more so than he normally is. Yeah. So they leave Ron with him, and he continues on into the chamber himself. And, you know, he's walking through these dark chambers, and he's seeing all these snake statues, and there becomes more and more of them. And then he sees a body laying on the ground, and he runs towards it and sees that it's Ginny. And then Tom appears magically out of the diary. Yeah. And so then the scene kind of begins where Tom's like, I played you both like a fiddle, you know, type of speech. Well, and you also get the action with the basilisk. Yeah, and you get the fight scene with the basilisk, but prior to the fight scene with the basilisk, the uh, fox appears. The phoenix. Phoenix, yeah. The phoenix appears and is sitting on his shoulder. And so then the fight scene begins and fox is sitting there like pecking out the basilisk's eyes while harry's basically just running for his dear life more or less yeah so you kind of see harry not as strong of a character as you normally would well i mean it's something that if you look into its eyes you're gonna die so like of course he's not gonna be as strong or whatever i wouldn't be strong against something like that either so the phoenix is poking out his eyes and then you don't have to worry about looking into his eyes necessarily Then at one point, it tries to bite him, and then the fang breaks off. During that scene, you have the sorting hat that was brought by Fox down to him, and he pulls out Gryffindor's sword. He pulls the sword out, and that's how he ends up slaying the basilisk. And then you see Harry like, ah, I am the brave, great Harry Potter type. Like, I've defeated him a little bit. At least that's the way it came across in the book, but you got to look on your face like you're so wrong. Well, no, Harry's just not boastful. Yeah. But he ends up getting punctured with that fang that falls out. Yeah. And so then you have the scene where it's like a kind of riddle going, oh no, you've defeated my monster, like conversation-ish. Mm-hmm. And then he, Harry rounds off the, the entire chapter basically by putting the fang through the journal and it just blurting out ink like it was bleeding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was... Basically killing the diary. Yeah. You know, then he races over to Ginny, and Ginny is, you know, struggle busting pretty hard. I left out part of, I guess, the scene as well where the Phoenix cries onto Harry's wound to heal him. Yeah. But, yeah, that that was a pretty strong scene. It was kind of like... A lot of action. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on in a very short amount of time. So, like, the book was so slow, and then all of a sudden it was like, we're driving 250 miles an hour. Enjoy it. I think it's just you have to lay a lot of foundation for this book's story to play out yeah and then it just zips right ahead at like full speed all Mm -hmm. in one go and then they're all holding hands basically while fox carries them out which is like strong bird yeah (laughs) i'm like and and from my understanding it's not that large of a bird so like phoenixes are known to be able to carry massive weight yeah and they do mention that in the book so yeah it's just like well I guess everybody's getting carried out. And then you have kind of the scene where they all meet back up with Dumbledore and they're like explaining a little bit to Lockhart that he's a professor. And he's like, I'm a professor. (laughs) And that was a great scene. Like it was just the right level of silly to kind of balance the intensity that just happened. And you Um, get a lot of that throughout the rest of the series as well. Yeah. And as Harry's trying to leave, Lucius Malfoy comes back barreling through the door and nearly running down Harry. And Dumbledore is like, yeah, I'm back. Like, everything's taken care of. You didn't hear? Like, mm-hmm. type of thing. Like, it's all good. You know, Harry took care of it. And Lucius loses his temper and just leaves because he didn't want to get into a magic fight with Dumbledore. Well, who would? <laughs> who, who would, exactly. And so Harry races back with the journal that's got a hole through it. 
and puts one of his socks in there because Dobby's there as well because Dobby was with uh, Lucius when he arrived and he hands the book back to Malfoy. to Lucius and Lucius Malfoy tosses the sock that's in it out of the air like into the air and Dobby catches it and Dobby's like master has freed me yeah and and Lucius is like what are you talking about he goes you gave me a sock mm-hmm. And so he starts threatening Harry, like, how dare you take, the, like, steal my servant. house elf from me, my servant from me. In response, Dobby's like, Harry has loved me even after all these things that caused chaos in his life. And just blasts Lucius down a flight of stairs. So it's just like, it's kind of like full circle. Everything's kind of closing off. Dobby's right. finally free and, like, shows his love for Harry that he actually has, even though he couldn't really properly express it you know, previous. But overall, pretty enjoyable book. I don't think it's going to be anyone's favorite Harry Potter book, but it's it's a decent story. Yeah, the build-up finally built up to a good ending, and again, I, I enjoyed it. It just wasn't quite as fast-paced as I hoped it would be, and I know that latter books are, so I'm just kind of like, all right, I'll suffer through this one for you just to build some more I can't believe you just said you suffered through a Harry Potter book. Well, like, the, the slower parts is what I mean. You know that. I don't mean that, like, the book made me suffer by any means. It just it took more time to get through this one than I felt like the previous one did. Yeah. And then we're not going to be doing a podcast next week, but hopefully the week after that we're going to be talking about the adaptation of Chamber of Secrets into the movie. Yeah, we'll try to keep you guys updated through social media with what kind of what's going on, what we're doing. I know, I'm sure Liberty, while she's up there dealing with what she's dealing with with her family, that she'll be able to post some pictures and things like that on Instagram of her yeah. reading and where she's at and that kind of stuff. So. And you're going to be starting Prisoner of Azkaban while I'm gone. Which I'm excited because of the three books that I originally read of Harry Potter, this was one of my more favorite books, so... That does not surprise me. Yeah. But again, I haven't read them all, so, you know, it's I'm excited about it. I though. mean, out of the first three, I think book three is the most solid, yeah. so... I'm definitely interested in it. Um, I'm excited to read it. Obviously, we'll do our best to keep you updated with everything that we have in the next week to two weeks. We're hoping to be back in two weeks, but yeah. we'll see what happens. But while I'm gone, I actually have reading plans. I'm going to be doing Chamber of Secrets myself this next week. Oh, man. And actually, I'm currently reading the second book in the Burn Witch series. So I'm going to be reading Witchfire, hopefully finishing it on Tuesday. So I can just be done with that duology because that first one put me in a slump. Yeah. But then I'm immediately reading Chamber of Secrets, which Harry Potter is my go-to. To get you out of slump. Yeah. The, the natural slump remover. Yeah. So if I have any problems with that, I have that. And hopefully I'll get a lot of this done on the drive up to Oklahoma. And then after that, I'll finally get started on The Empire of Gold by S.A. Chakraborty. It's the final book in the Devabod trilogy, the one about this woman who accidentally summons a djinn and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, I know you've loved that one so far. Yeah, and there's a bunch of political intrigue. I didn't like the way book two ended. I love the way book one ended. I hate the way book two ended. And so I'm ready to like move out of that into something else. But I'm really excited to do that. And then since I have to go to Oklahoma for about a week, week and a half, I'm also pushing back my Christmas in July. I was going to do it this weekend, but it's probably going to be the weekend after. Right. So I got approved for the arc of In a Holidays. It's a Christmas romance by Christina Lauren, that writing duo that I've read once before. And then I'm also going to try to fit in another 
Nightgalley arc I have called Miracle Creek Christmas by Krista Jensen. I haven't read anything by this person before, but basically it's one of those things where something bad happened to this character, so they have to flee to their hometown or flee to this like small city in order to sort of recover, and then they have this Christmas and romance happens. It's like a Hallmark movie, but in book form. So I'm excited for that, and then of course I'm going to finish out that with a Christmas cookie recipe and then a Hallmark Christmas movie. So that'll be my Christmas in July just a week later. Than originally planned. Yeah. I'll be gone for like a week, week and a half, so if I get through all that, I'll pick up other books that are going to be on my July TBR that I post the day I leave for Oklahoma, so that'll be up on my blog. And I think that about wraps us up for the week, Yeah. Um, information-wise, for you guys. We've had to take a lot of cat breaks, so this feels especially long to me, but we'll see how long it actually ends up being. Yeah, definitely one of our longer episodes, at least at least the way it feels currently. So we'll uh, we'll see what ends up coming out of it, and we appreciate you guys uh, listening to us. Make sure you check out all the social media that should be linked inside the show notes. Yeah, and uh, again, we'll be updating that throughout the week, and we appreciate you guys giving us a listen. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.